friends. My guest today is an actor, director, producer, and writer. His most recent work is a short titled Tex, which is based around events in his life and career. He and I used to work together in the event world, although now he's fully committed to pursuing his art. He's an awesome human being, and I had a great time talking with him about a bunch of different topics. Here he is, my friend, Timothy Blackton. It's supposed um, to be super casual. Well, that's good. I like it. I liked, I've been wanting to be on this podcast because I'm really excited to see the picture that you put up because what I always loved uh, about just seeing this, the pictures is everyone's smiling. You know, it was, it's always a very good, get a, get a good picture of people smiling. So I'm like, oh, this would be a good one to be on. That's funny. I'm terrible. I don't listen to podcasts. I'm on them, but I don't, I'm bad. I need to get better about that. Yeah, so you've been doing some episodes recently because of the project that you'd been working on yeah, for a while. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So you didn't know, you had no idea that I, I was a filmmaker, actor, no idea. director, producer, right? Yeah, I did all too much on this. Um, yeah, so for me, I think, you know, you know me from my events world and my t- our time there and, mm-hmm. and doing all of that, but really the passion and the desire for me is – Storytelling and and whether that's filmmaking or theater or whatever, I have that background and I do a lot of that kind of stuff and had been for a long time. And then the events world just kind of uh, you know, eats you up. And so you got to kind of figure out what you're going to do. And uh, I had been do- I've been doing some directing on the side. I directed for Wyden Kennedy, did a little commercial for them, a little web commercial for them, which was some friends of mine hired me. They were – Producers, they are producers, and they were like, hey, we need a bad theater production on stage. Oh, let's get Tim to do it. Tim can make that happen. Another perfect like, guy. Another perfect guy. Because I've done, I worked, used to work at a high school and taught at a community college and directed a lot of theater in, in my youth and have a theater degree and is of the strong background in theater. So, fell into events and kind of got away from what I wanted to be doing, which is storytelling and filmmaking mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, the project's text is about my life in AV. Mm-hmm. Um, in my early 20s, I was struggling to be a writer, trying to figure out what I was going to write and create. And they were like, write what you know. And I'm like, I I grew up on the west side of Portland, pretty pretty well off. Like, mm-hmm. life wasn't terrible, you know. So, I didn't have I didn't have a whole lot of life experience to really – Make something dynamic and make something interesting at, at a young age. I wasn't going to be my journey. Yeah. Um, so Tex ends up being just a culmination of, of 20 plus years of doing silly event stuff for silly people for silly amounts of money. Sometimes a lot of money, sometimes no money. And um, that project uh, came out of a Insta- not Instagram, but a Facebook picture. Lane Weinberg took of the crew of us at the Tiger Woods Center, a mm-hmm. bunch of us, uh, Rick Boats and Galen Burns and um, Terry Petta, just amazing. You know, uh, Terry, Tim Ritchie, Ethan Burke, both of those guys ended up actually working on the project. Ethan Burke was my director of photography. Nice. Just a great, great guy. Because I was acting in so much of it, I did really trust him to – to really get the eye for it. Um, and he did. It was just, just smart and great. And uh, so these shorts are just about my life in AV Tech. So the thing about Facebook picture comes up and it's all of us. And Lane writes on the caption, text, Sunday nights, 9 p.m., HBO. Mm-hmm. And we all just started writing stories about different stuff that we had been through in, in AV world. And I was like, oh, 
this is these are the stories I've got to create. There's some good stories. Yeah, and they're all based in all of that is based on facts. There's mm-hmm. nothing in that in those shorts was like I made that up because it seemed funny. It was all just sort of places of real stuff happening. Uh, obviously, at the end when you meet the band, it's all silly names, and I, and I, and I get that. But I've entered, I've met some road bands that are crazy and, mm-hmm. and, and silly, and the third one, which is a tech check in. Uh, that goes horribly wrong. And those of you in the AV world who know what a tech check-in is, is under a crazy deadline to get somebody's presentation up and going. And and that one was really fun to do because of the timing nature of it, to keep it under time. Sure. But its punchline is based off of a true story that had happened to somebody. So um, I just try to bring those all in and, and try to create something that's creative and fun. Well, and for me Sorry, watching that... ramble. Yeah. Uh, for me watching that, uh, figuring out scene by scene mm. that we're in the same location right now. So anybody that goes and watches that, yeah. they'll be able to see the conference room is actually the this room. The one we're in right now, is, yeah. which is just, which when, is you nuts. Had, when you had said when, about this whole podcast, like, hey, we're we're using that room to film the podcast, the same room you shot in. I was like, well, great. I know exactly where I'm going. The table is actually right <laughs> over here. Oh, there you go. They hit it back. <laughs> I know, because obviously you dressed it up so much nicer. Um, yeah, that one was a... You know, it's great. There's actually, I don't know if it's still there, but a four by three screen mm-hmm. hanging there, which was just like so great. I mm-hmm. mean, when I walked in, it was like when I knew, when the folks, lovely folks here at the venue, can I mention the venue name? Can I mention that? Oh, yeah. West Coast Drape, on, Encore, I don't know. Who, I've just always known them as West Coast Drape because I go back with them I think a they go time. by Quest. Quest, I'm yeah. sorry. Quest, an Encore company, I think. I don't know. Holy cow. Yeah, I don't know either. It's just so big. Um when they were like, yeah, you can shoot here, I was able to get a lot of previs done early. Mm-hmm. So the fourth one that I shot, which was the big one with the band, I had actually already had the previs for it done before I had shot chapters two and three. Mm-hmm. Like I knew how that one was going to look and feel already because I was able to be spend time here and, and get it all kind of figured out. Um because when you go into these independent shoots, you know, it's a small crew. And if, if anybody really, it's you, the DP. Somebody, you know, I got Tim Ritchie. Sam Curtis helped with sound. Um, What's a DP for people listening? Oh, the director of photography. This is the person behind the camera who really operates the camera and gets the shot. Um, so you, you come to them as a director with an idea and you explain it to them and they have to figure out how to frame it correctly. Oh, yeah. Right? But also I, as a director, have the framing pretty well set. Mm-hmm. I need to know exactly – how it's going to look, how it's going to feel, what my shots are in the course of the day. Like, I need to know I need to get a certain amount of coverage of you and I here at the desk. Well, and that's challenging, too, yeah. right? If you were the writer mm-hmm. and the director and, and acting. acting. And, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. that's a lot. Yeah, it was. And by the end of them, I sort of I, – I took myself out of some of the performance roles. Mm-hmm. I minimized that. Um, because I spread myself too thin. Yeah. I mean, that the problem by the fourth one – Writing, producing, directing, acting in it, I was too thin. And yeah. I, I needed more producing partners. My wife stepped up to help a lot, and she turned out to be a great partner. And Brandy Salfe also helped with really helping me understand good casting and mm-hmm. things like that. The great story about Meet the Band and that band is it's written for people I know, mm-hmm. like close, good friends of mine that I worked with at Nike that are musicians. Um, I won't name those names necessarily, but all very fabulous people, all of whom but one said no yeah. or didn't even respond back because mm-hmm. they're musicians. They don't want to be on – they don't yeah. want to be on camera. So I reached out to just some local actors in Portland, you know, some acting boards and said, hey – it's a credit. 
it's an extras credit. I'll give you a name, you know, and everything, and food, and that's it. And I got great people. I got the best, like, the amazing background of, of, of folks who came and played uh-huh. that day. And we just went about my day as I, as I do it on those things where you're called it. I got I get here at 7, make sure everybody gets here by 8-ish, and I have everybody out the door by 5. Mm-hmm. If you're coming to play for me for free – I'm not going to waste your time. Yeah. You know, and you, you hear these nightmare shoots of people, how oh, they were out for 14 hours, 16 hours. I'm like, you're not, I'm not doing that. It's so, not. but but between the four scenes, how many days did you shoot? Oh, over five years. Let's, let's do that. Uh, let's do that. Let's, let's, set, let's set back that, back set that for a bit. Because I was beg, borrowing, and stealing, and because I was managing my own personal life and things around it, uh, I ended up, uh, the first one I shot, you know, was a day at my house. Uh, one year, and then it was a year and a half later where I shot the second one out back here, mm-hmm. and then it was the following March that I shot the third one here, and then by February 2019, I shot the last one, and then it took me a year to kind of just get it out. You did know, so. you did you have to worry about your appearance? Like, Absolutely, <laughs> and make and, sure your your facial hair is all the same and, and everything. It's not, yeah, um, which is really hysterical. It's not. Um, it, my beard changes several times during the piece, <laughs> but because I space it out over a couple of days, you don't really know. But I go, I have a beard. The and the, the thing about it is, is they were all kind of meant to be somewhat independent things, but they all kind of work together, except for the first one, Show Blacks. So it's kind of its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a, I'm in a full beard with that one. And then I think I go to a goatee and then back to a beard and back. You know, it's like one of those things. Yeah. Because it was just so many years uh, between them, and I tried to manage my hair length too. So you had everything written five years ago. No. You were writing. I in- was writing as I went. Yeah. Like I knew – like I started writing out like what would be good – what would be good stories to do? What would be good, you know, topics to to do project to do stories on? And then you whittle them down. You go, what are the really right ones? What are the really best ones? Uh, Meet the band. Uh, Terry Petta actually wrote a big section of it as a because he knew I was doing the project, and he kind of came up with this idea of Meet the Band, and so he wrote out all a lot of the character names. And so I was like, do you want to write with me on this? He's like, nah, you just sort of fly with it. So I would then I took what he did as a, and incorporated it and then I just sort of then added my little sort of things to it. The the net net about text is it's a precursor to the bigger world of events. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm currently in the process of rewriting the pilot and developing a uh, production bible, uh, preliminary bible for a TV series about an event center. Okay. So everything in text kind of gives a relationship to what that bigger picture would look like. There's characters in text uh, that I mentioned, Mrs. Greenhill, who will become a prime character in the TV series supporting role. Uh, Kenneth, of course, who's uh, the production manager character, very key role. Galen and Gail, the AV techs, I, they're actually brother and sister. Mm-hmm. So that's how that works out. So um, so there's plans to to take this further and I would continue like to, with it. I, I yeah. would like to. I mean, I could easily do... I I I got a probably I could do another four episodes if I wanted to short mm-hmm. stories around it. I've got a couple of good ideas um, that I haven't really fully thought about a little bit a little bit because I hadn't really thought about doing that. But I might you never you never know. Uh, but the TV series is is really where it needs to go because um, I think it's more relatable. I think text is very 
specific. It's very focused. Mm-hmm. It's not every not everybody knows about it. If you work in an event center, you have people at least you know who have done service jobs, who have worked in restaurants, who have maybe done catering, who also go to concerts and do these sort of things. So it's a it's a broader world that way. It is in my mind. It's something that can be related to like the office. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a normal job that crazy stuff happens. Right, at. and I think we get I think in events. As you know, we get to do crazy things. There's just an insane amount of stuff that happens that's not normal. And, and, and. Well, and all the different personalities you have to interact with. Yeah. Uh, you are you, but you kind of have to change to become something else well, each time absolutely. you inter- interact with a new person. Absolutely. I, I think that's the key to good management and good mm-hmm. customer service is mm-hmm. to be gelatinous that way with somebody and kind of react to to whatever their specific needs are. That was the thing with AV for me and, and doing events for folks was signal in on what their tension point is. What makes them tense? Because you're going to figure out everything else, no sweat. Mm-hmm. But whatever really makes them tense, make sure you solve that mm-hmm. and solve it well. And it puts them at ease to let you do anything else. Well, the other important thing I've learned over time, and this is probably for any industry, is the more you appear like you know what you're doing and you are calm, the more you will uh, appease them and like di- dissolve the situation. Well, they, this is big for them. This, you know, the groups I was working with in Nike, they'd, this would be a big quarterly meeting for them. So this happens four times a year, maybe. Maybe they only do two meetings a year or something like that. I, it was my Tuesday. I mm-hmm. do it every day. So to remain calm, that, that, that you're right, that you love that's the best thing because they go, oh. Okay, well, we don't need to freak out about mm-hmm. this. Right, we don't need to freak out. Yeah. But what is it that concerns you? Well, this, this, and this. Okay, well, we'll get on that right away. Yeah. You know, totally. So in in this process of putting this together, mm. uh, the, the, the production text mm. that you wrote, directed, acted in, what – if you Produce. had to – and produced, I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, everything. Uh, if If – if you had a choice to continue down the path with just one of those things, what was the most rewarding or that you felt you were the best at? Like- Directing. Directing is really where it's at for me. Directing and then when I do have the opportunity to direct, I lose track of time. It becomes a zen-like place mm-hmm. um, and, and that's a real happy place. Producing, I know how to produce. I'm a good producer. Um, to me, it's a very – there's a certain level of artisticness to producing, but it's also very nuts and bolts in a way, uh, at least a lot of the producing I've done. So – and writing, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> yeah, right? It's so hard. You know, you're by yourself. And, I, and I've even written with writing partners and things like that, but it's still very – lately, it's been a lot of writing by myself right now, and that's been really hard. Um Do you have people you bounce ideas off Absolutely of? all the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely all the time. And – uh, mostly my wife. She'll call. She'll call bullshit if it's not, you know, like any kind of good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just lucky right now that I'm in sort of various networking groups where I'm just sort of pitching, like, "Hey, what do you got going on? This one I'm doing. I can give them the pitch or whatever." And people go, "Oh, that's a great idea. That's really kind of, you know." So, but with the current COVID situation, we're not doing live production. Nobody's meeting. Nobody's having that yeah. kind of stuff. So I'm kind of in a little bit of holding pattern with that all before I start like going. Okay, let's figure out how to raise funds to make this happen or do that or mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, acting, which is something I do, 
I'm doing it as a lark. It's just super fun to do. I was in a commercial for Coupa, the software company. Uh, that, How do you spell that? Uh, C-O-U-P-A, something okay. like that. And it aired on the cable news networks all around the elections. And so my face was everywhere. I was getting calls from people in California and friends who were in Atlanta. I'm like, hey, we're seeing you on TV. And I just like, I wish I got paid more for that. Um, but it was a fun thing to do is like because acting to me is just fun. Mm-hmm. Now – that's because when I go in just as an actor, I let go of any preconceived notion of whatever I am as a producer or a director. I'm there so they've hired me as an actor. Be an actor. Shut your pie hole and kind of do what they want. Yeah. And, 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 and in the best way possible. And, and I say that. It sounds harsh, but it's not. You just got to – you're there as a tool for the whole production to and, and you can't fuck up. That's my thing when you act. Mm-hmm. Where you can be a director and a producer and if something goes, oh, you can make a noise or, you know, be or whatever. Um Directing is – that's the idea. That's yeah. where it's got to be for me. Um, I, like I said, I'll – people are like, hey, I, I got a project. Do you want to produce it? I'm like, no. I'm going to produce me. That's the only person so I'm going to produce So can you days. explain for me and for everyone listening, uh, what what is the difference? What what, what does a producer actually do well, compared to directing? That's just a great question. What, what does the producer do? And the producer brings together all the right people. And puts them in the room and makes sure they all work well together to create a product. Um, it's very much a good producer. It's a lot of pre-work. It's a lot of prep work before the actual day of shooting, or at least for me in my events world as a producer. If I had a day that went really sideways, it was my fault. Like mm-hmm. I, but if I got ahead of it and made sure everything was lined up, I would just spend the day – you know, pissing out fires. Like, what, mm-hmm. else, what do you need where I can help you? So in the film world, a good producer brings together the right team of people, actors and, and uh, art, artists, and make sure they do the film properly. Okay. And, then, and then a lot of times we'll just, you know, manage, of course, the film as far as uh, entity and space and stuff for release and things like that. So where the director is going to work with the actors and the script and the DP and really get the shots put together. Yeah, really try to pull some – some sort of performance out of somebody, yes, right? Yeah, yeah, producers. I mean, producers are way supportive on all of whatever any member of their team is doing, mm-hmm. so they're intimately involved with every level of the production. Sure, yeah, sure. And so, ultimately, the the product that comes out. I mean, it's a mixture of a hundred different people. But Absolutely, really, you can place most of it on the director. Correct. And the producer. Yeah. And the producer. And the producer. Uh, and sometimes the writer, depending on who those all are. But those are the those are the people behind the the picture that you're going to say they made. That. But when they give the Academy Award, they don't give it the best picture. They don't give it to the director. They give it to the producer. So Christopher so, Nolan's doing something right. Uh, if you, yeah, yes and no. I haven't seen all his stuff. Yeah. And he's about ready to – I think he's leaving Warner Brothers. Because he's pissed off about the streaming business thing going on. And I get that, especially when you made a movie that was probably meant to be seen in the theaters and you're not getting that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he's – I don't know. He's not my favorite filmmaker. but he's Who's your favorite filmmaker? Ah, oh, shit. Um, or just somebody uh, that, that uh, you appreciate. Well, I mean, there's directors like Martin Brest who did Midnight Run, which is like one of my favorite pictures of all time. Okay. Um, you know, Judd Apatow does really kind of good. I like his stuff. Yeah. And his style. I do too. Um, 
you know, Tarantino's Tarantino, so you take that for whatever that is. Uh-huh. Obviously, Pulp Fiction sort of huge in my sort of like upbringing of film. Um, but there's some other. Uh, I, now you got me on the. What, what, what did you think of Hateful Eight? Couldn't get through it. Didn't got got ten minutes into it. And I thought it was garbage. Yeah, I couldn't get through it. It like, sucked. I and, and I'll be honest with you, I really didn't think Once Upon a Time in America, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, was all that good. I didn't either. And I'll tell you why. My reason was I never worried for Brad Pitt at all. Mm-hmm. I never thought, well, oh, shit, this guy's gonna get in trouble. Yeah. I, this guy literally, by the time they had put, well, spoiler alert, but the acid joint. Away, mm-hmm. I was like, that's going to come back. He's going to smoke it, and I'm still not going to worry about him. Yeah. And so, and also, Tarantino's need to rewrite history, which I sort of feel like is a, not, is a hacked way of dealing with yes. a story. No, that is what I appreciated the least about it because I read Helter Skelter. Yeah. And that book is insanely graphic mm-hmm. and gross. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those books that I, I'm reading by myself in my living room, yeah. and I'm like looking around behind me because I'm freaked right, out. Right. So I go to that movie yeah. and I expect as dark as that sounds, like I want to see what really happened. Yeah. I wanted to see it. Yeah. And then he completely changes everything. And I'm just like, this is, no, this and, is not good. And my wife who has no knowledge of Helter Skelter, no knowledge of that. Like that was never a part of her like uh, cultural upbringing, like to, to be involved with that or know about that. She was like, what's going on? So it didn't make any sense to her really yeah. at that point. So, um, Pitt's performance, phenomenal. Just a great performance. It's just a subtle, quiet performance, which mm-hmm. is some of the best sort of stuff. Um, but no, 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 great movie. Uh, but see, on the same token, talking about Tarantino, Inglorious Bastards is one of my favorite movies. Oh, yeah, that one definitely. And he rewrote that. Yeah. Like at the end when when they're blasting Hitler yeah. with the, oh, man, that's so redeeming. We love, we love that. And I think we he somehow wanted that with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I don't know. It didn't it didn't really fly. Um, for me, you know, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction are sort of the, the, the key ones there. Um, you know, Tarant- Tarantino is a character in and of himself. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's a personality and um, – so he said he's going to do 10. He's got one left. You think he's going to stop? Uh, do you know about that? No, I haven't heard about that. I kind of I, – I, I love the mythos that he creates around him mm-hmm. and the energy and the how they're all movies are tied together and everything like that. And he had a story for the Vega Brothers, which is – for those of you who don't know, John Travolta's character in Pulp Fiction is the brother of Michael Madsen's character in Reservoir Dogs, oh, the, the Vega that. Brothers. Yeah, and he had had a movie about the Vega Brothers he wanted to do. So I would like to see that if that's going to be the tenth one. But I don't know. You know, any kind of artist that says, "Well, this is this is it. We're never going to do this again," they throw enough money at it. it could, they're making Lethal Weapon five. <laughs> Does it have uh, Gibson? No Gibson? Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. So I, when I was in Hollywood, I worked with a producer, Jenny Lou Tugend, who was the producer on um, Lethal Weapon 1, 2, and 3, and I believe 4. Well, this was after Lethal Weapon 3 had come out. And I was, you know, I was a big Lethal Weapon fan, of course, as a man at the age and everything. And I said to her, I said, is there going to be another one? And she says, there's not enough money in the world. Turned out there was enough money in the world. They made Lethal Weapon 4. So... You know, anything's possible. Same thing with all the Terminator movies. Well, yeah, it's money. It's paychecks. Listen, they buy people buy houses. They want to buy another house. They need to pay for that second house. Yeah, and then like you look at De Niro, and De Niro is one of the greatest 
actors ever made some incredible movies and then he's doing the grandpa movie well, he's doing some other it's like well it's probably just also just the movie you get under a contract you you know you're gonna get paid one way or the other but you're gonna gonna do the work um getting a movie made is really hard and it's really crazy and these giant corporations that make movies lose so much on them. It's such a huge gamble. Yeah. Um, well, that's why basically the only thing that comes out nowadays is like anything in the Marvel universe. Well, Temple. Yeah, giant Temple stuff. Yeah. I mean, nobody's making any cool indie films anymore that actually go somewhere. They are. They're just other places now. Now they're on your TV. They're streaming on your phone. True. There's all these other avenues for them. But your traditional mode of the movie theater is obviously going to change here soon enough because if they want to go back to bringing people in a theater, we're going to have to have space for everybody. We're going to – it'll be much more of an event. You think it's going to happen? Yeah. You think it'll just go away? No, it'll happen. It'll happen. But you'll reserve seats, food and beverage, luxury accommodations, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. That's what it'll be. Yeah. But I'm the kind of person – who would say and and this is I mean we ended up getting my wife and I got HBO Max because there were a couple of movies out we wanted to see on it mm -hmm. and it's like right now Marvel keeps delaying uh, Black Widow and I'm like put it on Disney Plus make it fifty bucks I'll pay to see it at yeah. this point because I want to I want you know and families that I know go yes do this this saves us so much money because it's so expensive to go to the theater <laughs> it's so that's why theaters will become more tentpole event type things um, you know like the arc light you see in in LA and things that is a really premier experience mm -hmm. but it's also a premier you know price point mm -hmm. to get in and things like that. Uh, but also with TVs, TVs are big. Their sound is big at home. Nobody nobody wants to spend the money to go to a movie. It's, it's expensive for a family of four. It's a nice experience, but yeah, it's 60 bucks, 70 bucks Yeah, to watch a movie. To watch a movie. It's maybe an uncomfortable chair and a sticky floor. Yeah. When – and yeah. So it, I, I find that movie theaters will – We'll switch gears. They'll make it happen. We'll lose some. We're losing a lot. We're losing restaurants. We're losing all this sort of stuff. But everybody will come back in some form as this will. And and movie theaters will too. Um, it's just like right now it's a lot of real estate that's not making any money for comp companies and some will have to go under. So, yeah. 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 And so in the meantime, you, you used to be uh, an event producer and mm -hmm. now it is your – is your focus completely on film yeah, and, and making film? Yeah. So uh, when I stepped away from the job at Nike about a year ago, almost to the day. Oh, um, really? Yeah. It was, uh, it was uh, my last day with January 17th, 2020. And I left it figuring I will ride some event work through some of this and use that to segue to my film career and really want to do that because I felt like – I, I was developing in a place as an event producer to be more of a creative event producer and a creative director, live event director. So those opportunities were starting to happen. And I was like, okay, well, let me sort of work those out. And as I'm doing those kind of gigs, being a gig guy at the, at the time, we'll be like, okay, and then I'll segue more into film. Well, w when the COVID shutdown happened, I was in LA taking meetings March 9th through 13th, and I just watched them all fold up and close up. And yeah. It was like, we're not meeting, we're not talking. So I was lucky to get home that Friday. I didn't know if I'd even get home. Um, I did. It was fine. And then we just sort of everything kind of shuts down. And just in the last few months, 
you know, it was beginning to go like I'm – the event world isn't coming back the way it was. I don't have a vested interest to want to stay continued in it um, because I'd already been wanting to do this film stuff. So just with just how finances and life has been, I've been lucky enough to be able to have this time to work and prep and network and uh, develop the stuff I have to put together. You have to put together a pitch package. You got to put together business plans. You got to put together stories. There's all of it happening as a producer there. So, and writing. So I've been really enjoying that. So that's much clearer where I'm defining myself and what I'm about. Now, Will I take event work if it comes to me? Oh, hell yeah. I'm a whore. I mean, work's work. So, you know. I think that's why most people do it is yeah. because they're they're pursuing their uh, their dream or their artistic vision. But you also got to make money. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is I uh, – early on in college, I realized I wasn't going to be an actor full time. So, it was like I want to eat because actors, it was a dime a dozen. Like, yeah. but, but, and I wanted to direct – and the department was like, well, you're very well organized and you're good stage managers. We're going to make you a stage manager. I was like, yeah, I was fine with that because it got me on the right side of the table that I wanted to be. It got me next to working with some really high-end, amazing directors. It gave me a really good opportunity. I was running the, you know, the, running the department by the time I left, jokingly, I would say. Um, I had the keys to all the offices and was in charge as a student, sort of in charge of everything. So mm-hmm. that was sort of nice. Hand off to somebody next year. They get to be that. My friend Tracy, she ended up being that the next year. They kind of do this as you as you become a senior stage manager. They kind of go, you're going to kind of just run the shows. Mm-hmm. Like the faculty wouldn't show up for performance hardly at all. They just let us do our thing. But this is way back in the you know late '80s, early '90s, where mm-hmm. things were a little different. This department was much smaller. Um, but I, I was happy to make the choice to be a stage manager. I got me working right away. I got mm-hmm. me really focused and um, started working for theaters in Ashland right away and made the trip to L.A. and sort of worked in L.A. for a year or so and was like – realized I didn't really want to be the AD stage manager type anymore. So left L.A. after only there a year. But it was a crazy year. I worked nonstop and – What um, year was that? That was 95. 95? Yeah. I like dating myself because I feel really old now. Because and I get to say I get to say late in the last century, <laughs> yeah. and I get to say the word back in the aughts. Yeah, I think we all get to say the aughts right now, yeah. which is really fabulous. But late in the last century, uh, as in LA, so that you know that experience then of being in LA, thinking I wanted to be an AD, like I was going to go down and be an assistant director, which is very much a stage manager for film. And halfway down my time down there, I realized I didn't want that road. And so left it and, and fell into events and got married and have had a great life and it's been really great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it got me away from that focused dream of the L.A. film business. You still so, got the burn inside you. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can't stop. You can't stop, won't stop. You know, mm-hmm. I, uh, wife and I. Uh, didn't have kids, so I, I don't feel 52 that I'm going to be here soon. I'm, mm-hmm. I feel 25. And I've worked nothing but film, television, theater events my entire life. Mm-hmm. So I've never – I haven't had to take one of those like I got to just take a job at a bank. You know, yeah. I've never had to do that because I never wanted to. Mm-hmm. I got a theater degree specifically to work in the industry and do that. But do you feel like you would go into theater or you're completely in film? Because, I mean, oh, explain to people how different they are. They're hugely different mediums as far as 
types of performances, theater mm-hmm. performances versus film performances, just from an acting point of view. But theater, there's no money. There's no you can't hardly get paid to do theater these days. Yeah. I mean, theater is not a big money making venture. Film, you can at least kind of make a living and do it. There are actors I know that make livings in theater, but it's a tough living and it's a young person's game, I think, in that way. Yeah. I think there's a lot of the older actors that I knew back in the day. Um you're a vagabond. You have to travel a lot. A working theater actor, you're going to take a gig in Chicago. You might be in Seattle. You might be in L.A. It's it's a tough road, and not a lot of like it's not a lot of money. You know, it's a lot of performances. Brought you know, when it gets to Broadway, of course, in New York and all of that. Um, film acting, it's very. Um, it's to me, it's a funny thing. The reason why I think I like film acting is I don't have to act. I'm just me. Yeah, that's that's really like you look at this as these film actors. You go, they're brilliant actors. They're just kind of them. Yeah, I mean that's kind of really, where theater is more characters and you're hidden behind makeup and and all this. Kind of well, stuff. also there's no second take in no. theater. It's just, it's happening. It's happening. It's live. You're not fooling around. So, um, so would you consider that harder? Yeah, then? I think so. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Because I was on a commercial. I was on an industrial shoot a couple of weeks ago. I was having trouble with a certain line. I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. And I would get it occasionally, and then it would be off, and get it occasionally, and it would be off. And I, it, by me doing it more and more and more, it wasn't getting better. <laughs> yeah, right. And so the director was a little frustrated. I was frustrated because I wasn't getting the word right, but I had, had it right at a time. And the audio guy was like, oh, yeah, no, we got it in an earlier take. We can even put it in to be no problem. Mm-hmm. I was like, thank mm-hmm. you. You can't do that in a theater production. You can't be like, oh, I'm stuck on this word, everybody. Give me just a second. Yeah. Um, I like directing theater a lot. I, I miss doing that, and I hope to have that opportunity again to, mm-hmm. to direct theater because uh, it's a fun medium to direct in. It's very style, you know. You're very you're putting together an experience very different than film as far as its pieces, but still same structures. You're mm-hmm. gonna you're gonna have to draw people in with characters and good scenery and you know, hopefully music and lights and you know and a good script. Always a good script. It's just not as appealing as film to, no, to the masses. No, not at all. It's a, you know, theater is it, it's it's almost like people who do theater make theater for people who like theater. Yeah, a you know what bit, I mean? Yeah, and I've done enough theater in my life to know that I'm probably not going to see a lot of theater anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I'm probably not I'm probably not going to go just see a community theater version of Death on the Nile. Mm -hmm. I found recently, I found new joy in theater that I didn't think I'd have, which, because I I had done it, I started in junior high doing theater, did it in junior high, high school, college, you know, into my early professional life, and then continued to direct at the high school level, at the college level, and do a couple local productions here in Portland. But at a certain point, I was like, ah, it's just tiring. It's a lot of work. It's six, eight weeks of rehearsal for a two- or three-week show that maybe your friends come, maybe they don't. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of work for very little payoff. Um, so I kind of was done with it. I felt really done with it. But I was in L.A. visiting friends um, November of 2019, and her daughter was – they were doing a play at the, the high school, and her daughter's a big high school musical kid. And I went and watched the kids. And I watched them through their dress rehearsals, through opening, through a couple performances because I was there for a week. Mm-hmm. And that was 
That was awesome. That was what it was about. Like, yeah. That young, youthful energy of pretend. Yeah. Uh, that makes it super special. Mm-hmm. Um, the older, not so youthful aspect of pretend is becomes a business, right? It's a business then. Yeah. Even in professional theater, it's a business. Like I, I when I was working there, we were in Cabaret Theater. We were doing a show uh, called B Girls, uh, which is about uh, women singers of the 60s. And it was a six-woman cast. And one of the women just wasn't working out very well. Like she just wasn't being a team player, wasn't fitting in. Didn't understand that she wasn't the lead. That this was an ensemble piece. And two weeks before we opened, 10 days before we opened, we fired her. Fired her. So we took out her musical number. Uh, there was oh, so you didn't recast her. You no, just didn't eliminated. recast her. We fired her, took out her musical number, and had the other cast members pick up the songs that needed to get picked up and the characters that needed to get oh, wow. picked up. And. Holy shit, the show was so much better. Hmm. So much better than it ever could have been. And if we had tried to bring somebody in at that point to fill the role for this, it was, it was too, we were already too tight in the end of a group. Yeah. And, and I don't even know what my point was on this. So it was just good. <laughs> it's a nice uh, story about sometimes there's a piece that doesn't fit, doesn't fit. and you eliminate it you eliminate and it, it makes it better. It makes it better. But that's theater and that's that that excitement. Uh, you, in film, they would most likely just recast that person or yeah. whatever versus theater where you can kind of say, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to make this happen. Uh, and the story sort of worked. Um, but I guess you could do it in film too. Well, I mean, that's the that's a beautiful thing about being young and getting excited about something is you don't have that 20 years of being jaded about failing, or, well, yeah, you know what I gotta, mean? But you got after 20 years, part of it is good failing. You got to be failing constantly. If failing is good. Failing is good. And, and, and you only can really learn from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the excitement that you see when you hang out with a high schooler, oh, well, you know what I mean? It's a different thing. Well, they just don't know. They're so young. They have no idea. Have <laughs> it's no going to get worse. Gonna, just wait. I love that it gets better. Yeah, no, it <laughs> No, doesn't. it doesn't. It doesn't. It really can get shitty for a while. Mm-hmm. It's your atti- the only thing that can get you through it is really your attitude. If you are feeling like, okay, this is all really shitty, it's all going to be really shitty. Yeah. But at a certain point, you go, well, this is terrible, and this will pass, and it'll be all right. Then you're there. good for but it. It's also just like... I think people that do things with the intent of becoming famous are going to get disappointed. You just got to do it because you like it. You do it because you like it. You do it because you love it. Yeah. I. You're always remembered by your last gig, mm-hmm. right? In the, in the inter- entertainment industry, I didn't realize there would be booze here today, so pardon my English. Um You're always remembered by your last gig, mm-hmm. especially in the film business, especially in the event worlds. Um that you you have to sort of set set that up and know to do good work, and you will then continue to always work. Um, God, the bourbon, Jesus! Train that hit me. That hit me. That hit me hard. It's good stuff. Makers. Oh, I love it. I know it's really, really very good. Quite, quite the bar here. Um, do you just leave the bar set up the whole time, or do you have to? No, I actually just put it out yesterday. No, oh, that's nice. I did one yesterday that's with, with a friend good. of mine, and uh, oh, and hand sanitizer too. Yes, don't drink that. Don't drink that. Pour on a potato. It's not a beverage. Not a beverage of choice. Um, all right. So where are we? What were we talking? We were kind of all over the place there. We were going down a path, and I started telling the story about the actress we fired. Theater. Theater, film, the difference, uh, and and like I said, I, boop, pardon me, holy hell, I will I give an opportunity to direct theater again for sure, mm-hmm. absolutely, 
But again, it's a little like the movie theater. It's a bit of a dying art, I hate to say. The hope is that after this time of the COVIDs, because we had the before time of the COVIDs and we have the before after, times, before yep. times and the after times, that we all go back to these community events because I think that's vitally important to the human psyche. People are desperately missing that stuff. Absolutely. Even just soccer games for my kids and yeah. basketball and whatever. Like, yeah. People want to be around other people. Yeah, absolutely. And we just can't. And that's the heart. We're, we're a social creature. You were looking mm-hmm. up before the uh, races on or uh, creatures on or, or the earth before us. Hopefully they were social. We're all social. Mm-hmm. People are social. Um, you know, even introverts will say, you know, at a certain point, they would like to just chat with somebody or whatever, on whatever level you need to be social. Yeah. But I think on the big picture of it, yes, that co- that that giant energy of a stadium of people cheering something, the small crowd of the parents all drinking, you know, their coffees with Baileys on the sidelines on a Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. It's yeah. the same thing. It's that coming together as a group to witness something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even really like sports. Yeah. But anytime I go to like a Blazer game, yeah. I just look out at the the 10,000 people there and I'm like, this is insane. Yeah, I, There's all these people here cheering for one group of people. Oh, I was I for me I'm a theater like I said theater major, so working for Nike for 15 years was bizarre cuz right cuz I'm like well, their whole thing was if you have a body, you're an athlete. Like, okay, I get that, but I am not an athlete. Like, I'm not, not really competitive, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I do whatever. Um, but yeah, just crowds of people just love it. They just love that kind of energy, and it's all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, you also go to the Rose Quarter and see a concert, you know, and you go like I, <laughs> one of my favorite guys, uh, a guy named G Love and Special Sauce, great mm-hmm. little three piece band out of the East Coast. Um, was opening up for Jason Mraz at the Rose Garden, right? And G Love playing the Rose Garden. It's a way bigger venue than I've ever seen him at since and before. Like mm-hmm. it's not he plays small clubs and goes on at ten thirty at night. Yeah. So we're there for the show and 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 he plays and it's not good at all because the acoustics <laughs> are terrible and there's nobody in the room and, and so we're waiting and, and Mraz starts and I begin to realize the place is fucking packed. Yeah. And he and Mraz, Jason Mraz hadn't had a hit for years, but he was still on tour. He was still making a ton of money. He was still f- filling the, you know, the Rose Quarter. Mm-hmm. We didn't stay, of course, for the show because I was like, well, this is not this is not me now. Yeah. This is not my world. But there's a giant world. And at the, if anything the internet has taught me is if you need community, it's out there. Yeah. People who want, like what you got, want what you've got, you've got what they've got, whatever that has to be. It's an amazing the amount of contact. And now these Zoom meetings, which I think obviously everybody's really frustrated with, mm-hmm. unfortunately, is the only way to make contact. And there's now, for me, in the groups that I'm in, which are a lot of freelancers who don't have a day job so they're not constantly on Zoom calls, are learning how to fucking network on a Zoom call. And, you know, you get into these meetups and they put you in a room with six other people and you got to chat with them. And it makes you really good to just get to know people. It's not the same, though. No. Because people people say to me, they're like, uh, oh, you know, you don't need to have people come down in person to do a podcast with them. I'm like, no, you I did one yeah. with my friend that was via Zoom. Yeah. and. It's not the same. No, no. I've done I've done two, and they're obviously not the same. So no. this one, the third one, I like this a lot more. This is way better. And we're in a space that's comfortable and mm-hmm. ventilated, and it's open and the whole thing. So, um, but yeah, I, I, zooming is 
I mean, the nice thing is that those days will be done. Like, well, there'll be a period of time where they won't be happening like they're happening. Yeah. They won't die. No. Because it it's, people are getting a lot of work done from remotely now. So Exactly. Yeah. And I, I talked about this a little bit yesterday uh, with my buddy Skylar, just the fact that there are so many people who aren't required to go to the office anymore. They can all just work from home. And yeah. so there's there's like a strong argument for many of these corporations to just let – there's an argument for uh, from the employee to their – their uh, authorities that they can stay home. Mm -hmm. It's like they they never could really prove it before, right? And now, like and you've been doing and it, and people's productivity is up. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you give people the option and trust them that they'll do their work, that's the problem. Is a lot of these corporations people don't trust their people in mm -hmm. a way. No, you have to be here at your desk doing your work because we don't trust you. Because if you're not at your desk, you're not working. And no, this has definitely shown, yeah, people don't work from anywhere, however, and the work's getting done. Yeah. So it's pretty funny that way. I yeah. just And we'll see how it comes back. I think the one thing that Gates, Bill Gates was saying is that our communities are going to change. Where a long time maybe your community was your work community. Now if you're not in that with those people so much, now it's going to be your people in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It's going to be people, you know, people closer to you in a physical way versus – uh, an emotional way of work mm -hmm. or what have you. So. It's interesting though because I don't know – I don't think anybody thought that we'd be where we are at now, almost a year later. Like it, it seems like it should have been something, – well, something better should have happened a long you, time one ago. One would have thought. But, but So it just makes me think like how – maybe this is just it. This is just what it is now. Well, it's not – I mean they're finding new mutations. They're finding, exactly. They're finding things now where it can be in your brain dormant for a while and then show up. We don't know what no. we're dealing with. No. And, and the, you know, the polio thing and the, the vaccining and all that sort of stuff and people fighting those kind of things. Like, well, come on. This – we did the Spanish flu thing. Everybody got vaccinated. We were fine. That's why the Roaring Twenties were the Roaring Twenties because of that thing in 1918. And then everybody went back to partying. Mm -hmm. Now, we can't just go back to open partying again. I mean, <laughs> Why not? Well, I mean, why not? But it'll happen. <laughs> Let's I mean, do it. Well, we got to get this virus under control. Yeah. And, that's, and then I think of like I have friends who have kids who are in college and my niece is in college. It's her first year in college, and yeah. she's just in her dorm alone. That sucks. So, like, that sucks. Like, in college, you better be partying and drinking mm -hmm. or, you know, and doing these kind of social things and being dumb and being stupid. Mm -hmm. And part of, that's the, part of that's growing up. And, you know, they're not having that opportunity quite like that right now. So, yeah, hopefully it would be great to get this under control. I mean, it was I, – I put it squarely on the former federal government that didn't really do the work that needed to get done. I think they've got some adults in the room now who hopefully can get this taken care of, but it keeps evolving. It keeps evolving, and I don't think anyone really knows what they're doing. No. Everyone's trying to figure it out. No one knows. In real time. Yeah, no, because this is brand new. No one's mm -hmm. researched on this. We don't have clinical research on COVID-19. We're literally just trying to fix this in the moment. Mm -hmm. And our medical technology, the fact that it can do that, yeah. that's super crazy. Yeah. When you think about – it's possible. That's what's even more mind-blowing. Well, yeah. The, the crazy thing to me is like they discovered this virus, you know, sometime about a year ago. You know, uh, over, yeah. January 2020. Uh, actually, it was before that. It was in the, it was in the fall of 2019. Okay. It, it was coming in. So they, they discovered that. They, they really started working on it, you know, February 2020, March 2020, mm -hmm. trying to figure out some sort of cure yeah. or vaccine. Yeah. Within a year, yeah. they have something that they're they're dishing out. Yeah. How long did they work on AIDS? 
You know what I mean? Like, if that's all it takes is, like, really fucking a, focusing but, on it for but, a year. But, a, but AIDS at the time, I mean, they never put the energy towards it. And, they never, you know, it, it, that they're putting a massively, massively focused effort on this. But a lot of the work that they did on AIDS – is helping with deal with this. Type I've of seen stuff. some of that. Yeah. yeah. So it's all it's all it's all part and parcel. But I, I my father in law is one of the oldest gay men around mm-hmm. that's been on the cocktail for a long time, and they study him at the University of Utah a lot about, really? about how he's been doing. And he's been on the cocktail for so long, it his bones are deteriorating. That we'll see. Everything else seems to be holding well, but he's literally just got titanium kind of everywhere. Oh, wow. So that's sort of what the long-term effect of that cocktail can be huh. on people. But he's still alive with HIV. Yeah. It's well, crazy. I mean, same thing with Magic. Yeah. Magic Johnson, he's yeah. had it since, what, 91, yeah. I think? yeah. 30 years, Yeah, man. so you can manage it. But uh, the COVID and the, the response to it right now, you're right. It's we just don't know. We don't know. We don't know nothing. No. We're literally just going every day by day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people need to get the vaccine. The idea that, you know, well, these people have to get it first and these people have to get it first. Who fucking cares? Just get it. Just get it out to people. We need to get it out there. Mm-hmm. Um and we'll see who takes and who doesn't take it because mm-hmm. I think certain places will then not allow people in the room if you don't have it. I just read an article the other day that said there's a Republican um, senator, some, somebody in Congress, said that uh, he wants to make a part of the stimulus package that you don't get the $1,400 unless you have proven that you've taken the vaccine. Interesting. OK. that's But see, that's a little – there, there's so many, there's so many well, dilemmas. Dilemmas, and our government obviously has has a lot of work to do. But I, I don't think you should make anybody do anything. It's weird if you tie it to money like I that. No, it's true. My money is, I mean, money is that thing that's everybody wants, everybody needs, everybody wants more of. You know. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I honestly. The new the new administration is only you know, by the time, I don't know when you're going to air this so mm, new, a couple of days couple right. days so the Three, new four days. yeah new administration has only been in for a, a couple of days really um, hopefully better leadership at the top will trickle down to get it all kind of done out right mm-hmm. um, that's for sure I if given the opportunity to get my shot I'll get it mm-hmm. yeah, sure I mean. I, I like the whole joke of people like, well, they're going to put a chip in there and they're going to track you. And I'm like, have you not noticed your phone has a little like that? I'd love that that play on that. And I was like, your yeah. phone tracks you. Yeah. Everywhere. Do you have a Facebook account? Do you have a Facebook they're account? They're already tracking you. They're already, they know exactly where you are. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah, that's, that's part of the – I think that's definitely part of what we're dealing with. There you go. What, nobody, Shinerbach? Is that what I was looking at? What are those? You never seen these? Oh, the sessions, yeah, yeah, sessions. Out of Hood River? Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I had actually. Those are the. Um, they look. I don't know if, where you're, you're from. I want to say the Dalles. The Dalles, that's right. Uh, so you're familiar a little bit with Oli back in the day. Oli, Oli Olympia beer, the Oli bottles. They're very similar to these looking Sessions bottles. So when the Sessions guy was out for one event I was doing, I was like, "Your little bottles remind me exactly of these old Oli bottles." He's like. Yeah, it's the same machine. We bought it from them. And that's Serious. Yeah, so, yeah. 
The Dalles. I was just in the Dalles for a film festival. Tech showed at a film festival in the Dalles. In the Dalles? Yeah, he the guy the guy took over. There's the what's his sun, name? Sunshine Dairy. Uh, the guy Mike Colfair, who was doing this thing, just had it out at the Sunshine Dairy uh, or whatever. Sunshine. It's not dairy. What's I'm thinking? It, uh, the silos. Yes. The big yes. silos. You put up a projector against and shot there. Wow. The guy they show they show movies there and everything. So my my movie actually premiered. Tax actually premiered in the Dallas. Holy shit! That's just, crazy. Yeah, because I was gonna do a big party before the COVID's hit. You know, have a premiere party, invite people. I rented out Kells and bar and was gonna do a thing, and that yeah, all went away. So I needed to have it, this film put out. So I was like, well, it's the. Film festival picked it up. Oh, let's make it a premiere. Huh. Which is great because I got a little got a little write up for it and everything like that. But the Dallas, yeah, it, it's a different place. It. I mean, I I haven't lived there for probably fifteen, yeah, sixteen, seventeen years. Yeah, it, it it's changed a lot. I mean, there's a bunch of uh, smaller breweries. Yeah. That that place is yeah. new. That yeah. used to just be a vacant. Oh, it's an event grain space. It's silo. Super crazy cool. Yeah. Have you been into some? Like, they, I haven't yeah, been like, in there. No, it's really cool. You should check it out next time you're there. They they make their own wine, don't mm-hmm. they? Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I own land um, just north of that in Goldendale, Washington. Yeah. Between Goldendale and Glenwood, I own five acres in the woods. The okay. wife and I bought um, about five, six years ago just to go camp, basically. We got tired of having to fight for camping spaces and – my wife is like, if I'm going to move to the woods, I'd just like to have it all there. So we bought five acres, put a little cabin out there. and um, How often do you go up there? Uh, every chance I can. Um, it's definitely a three-season kind of space because there's no heat. There's no water, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's like a legit cabin in the woods. A little, little, well, I'd say it's an old hickory shed, which is a little manufactured cabin. And we finished it out with uh, insulation and put in flooring. And we have a bed in there. And it's like a bedroom in the woods. And then we have a whole outdoor kitchen that we set up and everything nice. like that. Uh, but, you know, but usually by October, November, it's all closed up. I shut everything, put everything back in the shed, put all the chairs away and, you know, shut it all down, put mm-hmm. all, you know, shades and everything and really close it up. But I was just there. There last week it was overnight. I stayed, and we have a little propane heater for the cabin. So, you know, it was thirty-two degrees when I woke up. It was pretty cold, but you get a fire going, and it's yeah. fine. Uh, um, but then usually by February, March at the latest, everything's out. We've got a you know a big old camp chef camp stove that's got three big burners. Each burner's thirty thousand BTUs. So we got a big old flat iron griddle and. Gravity-fed sinks and a composting toilet and a lovely what, bed. What, what does that mean? Composting toilet is a toilet that uh, has no plumbing. You, Where does it go? Uh, in the toilet. <laughs> Just magically disappears. No, you have to manage it. Um, so uh, a lot of people say, well, we have a composting toilet. We And we get very – this is going to be the graphic part of your show. Uh, so those of you who are skifo uh, about talking about bodily functions – uh, this is a disclaimer. We really should because I'm going to be very graphic <laughs> about this. Uh, should probably uh, fast forward a little bit. Um, but it, a lot of times people say, well, we got a composting toilet. Okay, what's your composting toilet? Well, we poop and pee in this bucket and then we have to pour this out into some place and that's called composting. That's not composting. Really good true composting, a really good toilet. So you have to separate the pee and the poop. That's the difference. So if you think about your dog crap, if you, have, you take your dog out, it craps uh-huh. in the backyard. You don't touch it. Yeah. What happens to it? it fucking turns to dust. It yeah. just disappears. Yeah. Human feces is the same way. 
So the toilet we bought, the composting toilet we bought, and we paid a lot of money for this toilet, $1,200. Damn. Yeah. Your solid waste goes in the back through a slot in the back, a hole in the back. And all you do is you put it in there with peat moss. Mm -hmm. And it's just going to break down with your single-ply toilet paper. It's just going to break down and turn to dirt. That's all it does. But it just goes in a hole in the ground? No, it just goes in a box in the bottom of the toilet. Okay. So the toilet, so you have this, the seat that you sit on, there's a box underneath that your solid waste goes into. And then there's another outlet and a jar in front for pee to go into. And it works for men and for women who's ever sitting down. Mm-hmm. So the pee bucket, you just have to pour out every so often. And the composting side, just a little, just a little cranker. You turn it, spin it, turn it over. And after a few months of, of using it or whatever, it's just all dirt. You just put it in the garden. Huh. Yeah. And so why not just have an outhouse and dig a hole? Because um, then you got to go outside to a different structure? Well, this is actually this this toilet we don't put in the cabin. We put it in our, you know, another little outside shed kind of thing. Um, that's just pooping in the ground, which you could do. But <laughs> sounds awesome. It sounds awesome. <laughs> I don't know. For some reason, I'll, pooping we, in the ground. We, the composting toilet seemed a little better way to manage it for mm-hmm. us, I think. It was just, I don't. I don't know. It just wasn't the idea, though. The, the, then you'd have to be constantly moving your outhouse. I yeah. mean, with this composting toilet, you, you manage it and then dump mm-hmm. it, and it's perfect. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. My dad grew up in Southern Oregon. Oh, sure. And uh, where the, in Southern Oregon? Uh, Lakeview. Okay, sure. And New Pine obviously, Creek. Obviously, I spent time in Ashland, so I kind of yeah. Know so you kind of yeah, you know that area. Uh, yeah. And uh, the, when he was a kid, even though they had indoor plumbing back yeah. then, this yeah. is like the early sixties. Yeah. Uh, there were still outhouses everywhere. Yeah. And he said that people would drop watches and coins yeah. and all kinds of stuff in there. So one of the things that he was really excited to do was buy oh. a metal detector oh, and go walk around in oh, people's backyards and try to find. Oh, yeah, totally. You know? I mean, there was an outhouse on the property when we got there and we were like, you got to not have that. We don't need that there. Um yeah, the the composting toilet offers a, a little more privacy. A little, it's nice. It's plastic, so it's not like kind of like going to crazy. It's modern. Thing. It's modern. Um, but yeah, we have to bring in our own water, no electricity. But the truth is, by the time it gets dark, you're kind of done with the day anyway. Did you dig a well? No, we're gonna. If we're gonna build up there, well, we would do the well when we build. Yeah. Like that's the thing is like we thought about one point like well maybe we'll do the well maybe we'll add electricity bit by bit by bit before we actually build up there, and then. Um, the idea was, and the suggestion was do that all when you build because you're bringing in the trucks one sure. time and all that kind of stuff. But now we're not so – building isn't so key for us, like a retirement kind of place necessarily. Um, there's a lot of fire danger up there, obviously being near all the woods. So we not, don't necessarily want all our eggs in that basket, yeah. you know, as it were. So as a vacation property right now, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. If but eventually that's the plan to sell whatever you have here in town and go there? Maybe. Yeah? Maybe. I don't know. I don't really know. Um, like I said, we thought about maybe that's where you'd want to retire. We're less inclined to make that the choice right now. I think it's an option of a place to go and to be. Um, I, I don't really have any set idea of where I want to finish out the ride, as it were. We don't have to talk about that yet. No, no, it's all good. <laughs> Listen, at 52, I'm thinking about it. But I, what I feel like at this point is my – Mother retired early, and it slowed her down really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father-in-law uh, and has not retired, and he's still going. And there's something to be said about work and meaningful work that can drive you forward. Yeah. Um, I 
at this point feel like I'm on the next step of my career and I'd like to do that for a while. So mm-hmm. I have really no interest in wanting to stop doing what I'm doing. Well, yeah, and owning land is like the best thing you can do. Yeah. I mean, I'm, can you imagine how much that five acres will be worth in 100 oh yeah, they're, years? They're not making much more land. That's no. the joke. But they are making land in like Hawaii because, you know, the, 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 they're or, literally, I mean, these, these in Dubai. volcanoes. In Dubai, they're making islands. Yeah. It's crazy. So, yes, they are making land, but they're really not making land. Yeah. And yeah, to have it uh, as a place that I know that I can get away with. Balancing this with my life in Portland, mm-hmm. like I, there was a period of time where I think I was going up every weekend for probably 14 weekends in a row. Wow. Like literally I would just Monday through Friday be in Portland, Friday night, leave for Buck Lane and come back Sunday night. And how, how far of a drive is that? It's two hours for us door to door, wow. door to door. I mean, obviously if you're stopping to pee or getting food or whatever, but it's, you know, if you say it's two hours, six minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So you can, get up there, you can get up there for the day and come back if you want. It's not the f- most fun. It's funny because uh, I associate your st- – because I, I knew that you had that place up uh-huh. there. And also my dental hygienist mm. lives in Portland and has a place in Goldendale. Oh, I bet. So I always wonder if like you guys are neighbors. No, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean the thing – what's great about where we picked – it took us a year and a half of driving up there a lot to find what we needed. It took us a lot, long time to do that. Um, I didn't think I'd find a place so westward. I thought I'd be another. I thought I'd be another forty-five minutes to an hour east mm-hmm. of where we ended up being. Um, so when people from Portland come out and visit us, they're like, oh, "You're way out here." Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Okay." People from Goldendale come up, and Goldendale's only you know fifteen miles to the east. Mm-hmm. They come out and they're like, oh, "You're way out here." And I'm like, "I think we're in the right spot," you know, because we're up the Glenwood Highway. Um, where the neighborhood kind of ends and it just sort of starts becoming, you know, giant BLM land and the yeah. whole valley that's there. And so I'm doing great roads, some great driving roads. And I'm a car guy, so I drive the cars I love out there and 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 take those out on the roads and, and do all that kind of stuff. So, How many cars do you own? Well, currently I only own – well, if I count the one that's my mother-in-law's, I own four. So that's a lot of too many cars. But um, I have the most recent purchase – is something I haven't really formally announced. Like, I'd like, like a lot of people know that I'm into cars, and I've owned, I've owned in my time, I've owned two Land Rovers, MGs. I've had a Lotus Esprit, which is James Bond's car, and that blew up in a spectacular fashion. Beamers, Fords, Hondas, uh, Mazdas. You know, some not necessarily. I'm not like. I'm not like an exquisite car guy, but mm-hmm. I just really love cars. Uh, the MG was a 1970 MGB that I rebuilt. And I currently – I bought in this last year because sometimes you have to find reasons to spark joy uh, – a 1998 Porsche Boxster. Which very is, nice. It's very nice. And they're very cheap right now. They're amazingly cheap. They're a smoking deal for a – Why? Um, not a lot of power, so that turns a lot of people off. Uh, for Porsche people because they're pretty snobby. Yeah. It's mid-engine mounted, which isn't for everybody. It's a different kind of weight balance. But I love that. I love that the Esprit was a mid-engine mounted car. So I really love that. So what does that mean? The engine's underneath the seats? It's right behind the seats. Wow. So uh, in a Porsche 911, that engine's way in the back. It's way in the back. It hangs out the back, so you get a lot of, a lot of tailspin. Mid-engine puts it just over the rear axle. 
So, and just forward of the rear axle. So, uh, right behind the driver's seat, and this is a little two-seater convertible. Um, I bought a hard top for it because it's Portland in the rain, and I wish I drove it today. Uh, but it's a great little car to just go out on the roads, you know, five speed and up in Goldendale and up in that area. There's some amazing roads. And yeah. so uh, I'm pretty lucky that way to have that. So have you driven a Tesla or any other electric yeah, vehicle? actually I have. And I love – I uh, bought a – was a – whose was it? It was a Model – whatever the – Last one was that came out. The Model th- 3? 3. Yeah. Yeah, I drove a Model 3. And, you know, I just love about electric cars is the immediate torque. Like yeah. The immediate power. But most people complain that you can't hear it. Well, right. And that's, that's I mean, that a lot of people complain with a Boxster, the exhaust, you can't really hear it. It's a very mm-hmm. subtle, subtle exhaust. Um, yeah. It's sort of, that's one thing. It's not, not ha- doesn't happen so much. But I'm of the mind of like... The way electric cars are going, like all I love this Boxer. It's a '98. It's the second year of the of the of the of the year model year. It came out '97, okay. so it's a series. It's an early model. It's generation one. You know, just sort of really just you know stick shift and not a lot of else. Right? There's just very raw driving experience mm-hmm. and an engine. And I would say that I would keep this car forever to just always have that experience. Yeah. The cars I have now, neither of which are hybrid, will probably be the last two full combustion engine cars I'll buy. We're very close to no one driving anymore. Well, that too. That's a whole nother thing. Mm -hmm. Um, My niece, who's 17, 18 now, no interest in driving. Mm -hmm. Uh, my nephew's 14, not interested in cars. My niece, who's another niece, is 15, very interested in cars. So she's sort of the only one. Um, yeah, you get an Uber driver, you get an automated driving. You know, you're not going to need any of that. It's close. It's really so, close. So close. And I think eventually they will outlaw combustion Ooh. engines. And I mean, it's already happening. They're already yeah. saying by 2025, In California, California, right? all these like we're not going to be making them anymore. Exactly. So if you stop making them, you're going to stop seeing them, and that's just what's going to happen. Well, this is probably a good time to buy something then, right? Because oh, I think so. I think these Porsches so much money. I mean, I didn't pay hardly anything for this Porsche. It's very little I paid for this thing, and it's because as far as Porsche owners go, and what they feel is a good Porsche car, a lot of people don't agree that this is. Now, mm-hmm. the same could be said about the 914 that came out years ago, 100 years ago, and was sort of a poor man's Porsche. Well, now they're really expensive. Mm-hmm. So timing is everything on that. I look forward to a hybrid car right now because I think you want a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit of – I have a little bit of range phobia with the electric cars. Like, yeah. But I think as more electric cars happen, ranges get better – more charging stations, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, the, I just dig the immediate torque. That's just me as a car guy. Like, I'm just going to love the torque on that just to go. It's fun to drive. Yeah. I mean, it's exciting to to think about a world where you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. You, you're basically getting on your own personal bus where somebody yeah, else is driving. I still, that's still for me, I like driving. I, I like being in control. Like when my wife drives, I love her to death, but I'm like, 
I'm being an asshole in my own mind about how she's driving. Like, I need to, like... <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> you no, know, exactly. A couple of times. I'm like, just let... She's... I'm like, she's been driving a long time. But she'll be okay. Like, yeah. I just need to shut my trap. Yeah. Um, but, but that's because I really... I just like drive. I just like driving. Mm-hmm. I, um, it's a fun thing. And right now, with the COVIDs as they are, it's kind of the one thing we're left to go do if you want to go do something. Yeah, to and just get, get out. Get your car and drive is mm-hmm. what you have to do. It is interesting, though, like what you said about your, uh, I think you said niece and nephew. Yeah. Uh, I have a cousin who is, God, he's got to be 19 or 20. He doesn't have a driver's license. Yeah, no. I'm like, what are you doing, man? I got mine the day I turned 16. Oh, my dad said I was out of the house. Yeah. I was out. I remember the first day I got my license. I was like, and this is before a time where cars had really good cup holders, but I went into McDonald's and I was like, I'm going to get me a big old Diet Coke. And I got a big old Diet Coke and I'm driving. I'm like, this is harder than I thought, you know, that kind of thing. Because it's independence. That was the thing. It was independence. Exactly. And my, I told my niece that the older one, I was like, you should get a license because it means independence. Mm-hmm. You can get out of the house. But nowadays in Portland, being what it is, the the bus system is not shabby. It, yeah. It'll do what you need it to do. I, I know years ago I'd always ask people um, who were moving to Portland, like, why would you move to Portland? Because they were coming from the East Coast. This was this is usually 20-plus years ago. But, you know, people are like, well – we were we were we were going to we were going to go check out the West Coast. We checked out San Francisco and Seattle was our plan, but we just fell in love with Portland, and the mass transit was great. It's like I guess it kind of is here, and it is pretty dense. You can kind of you see buses everywhere. You can get mm-hmm. anywhere you need to go, and Max is super helpful. And mm-hmm. you know, Portland traffic's insane to begin with. So why would you want like as a kid? That would be the most frightening thing. Yeah, I I think it's I think it's. Elements other than that, though. I think yeah. kids nowadays, they're just – they're getting a lot of what they need from online. Oh, well, yeah. You don't have to go anywhere. But I don't – and it makes me sound old, but I don't understand that. I want to see somebody. I want to interact with them in, in person. You know what I mean? That's a lost art. I mean, it's a lost art. I mean, even to the point that you can even go back to – with that with that little mindset is we're emailing way too much. We're e- nobody fucking picks up the phone anymore. Mm-hmm. Just pick up the phone and call me. Have a quick conversation. Yeah. No, I'm going to email you a list of tasks and things I need you to do with very little explanation. Mm-hmm. And you have to succeed on all of those. And if you have another question, you have to shoot me back an email that maybe I'll respond to at some given time. Yeah. Email was never created for that. Email was created for short blasts of information. The fact that people write pages and pages of detailed emails is ridiculous to me. Yeah. Pick up the fucking phone. Yeah. Pick up the phone. Communication. You're right. You don't have to communicate so much. Yeah. It's weird how much it's changed. I mean, there's how so old many- are you? I forget how old you are. I'm 36. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're 36 is definitely like – your early 30s are a little overwhelming. Uh-huh. But by the time you're 36, you're like, shit, I'm in this now. <laughs> you know I mean? I'm heavily into the 30s. Yeah. Heavily, yeah. You're heavily into your yeah. 30s. Yeah. Um, and it gets better, Cody. Cody, it gets better. No. It, it gets worse no. and it gets better. Absolutely. Listen. It's two-sided. It's absolutely life is that way. Life gets better. Life gets worse. It's going to be how you choose to roll through it mm-hmm. is how it's going to go for you. Mm-hmm. It's all based off of your interaction with the world. The world isn't changing. It's going to do what it's going to do. Mm-hmm. And if you choose to be frustrated with it, you'll be frustrated with mm-hmm. it. If you choose to let it kind of roll off your back a little bit, you'll be better suited yeah 
When I was younger, I never really wanted to uh, take any advice from anybody. You know, oh, yeah. you, you don't want to listen to anybody. No. And the older I get, it's like a, a, a lot of nights I'll just go to bed and I'll be like, whoa, an entire day just went by. And here I am getting ready to get in bed again. Like it really does just blow by. Like the last year of COVID, yeah. it felt like a decade, but it also felt like 20 minutes. Yeah. It's like, so the line that I heard was – when you're young, the days are long and they – no, wait. How does it go? Years are long. Days are short. Mm -hmm. As you get older, years are short. Days are longer. Hmm. I think is how that goes. That Again, sense. I'm having more bourbon. So, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I definitely – you're right. This whole COVID thing, obviously for everybody to sort of – Stop what they were doing in whatever way they were doing it, readjust, and then kind of continue. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, yeah, it's fascinating. And it, I kind of, for me, I remember it was like, okay, the thing went down in March. Well, let's see where we are in July and really kind of assess. Like, let's just hold tight for just a little bit until July happens and then we'll see. Then it was like, oh, end of the year, easy. Oh, easy Keeps 20, going. 2021. And now we're saying hopefully sometime later this year, you know, the idea that movie theaters would open up again. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a great way to look at it. But they pushed. They pushed they pushed all the big stuff from April to October. Now, we're, you know, we were optimistic about April. Now we'll be optimistic about October. So I had a uh, vacation planned with my kids oh. and, and uh, my parents to go to Disneyland. And we booked it in March or April, and we were supposed to go in August. Right. And we knew by June right. it wasn't going to happen. Right. We just rebooked it a couple weeks ago yeah. for August this year. I don't know if it's going to happen. So I remember seeing some pictures on the the face space of your trip because I'm I'm a big Disneyland fan. Mm -hmm. I'm just I just always. I buy into – you go to Disneyland, just buy into it all day. Like don't even – and like I'm an adult who loves Disneyland, so it's just a little creepy. But um, – That's right. No, no. Jim Gaffigan says that about adult people like Disneyland. But <laughs> listen, it's the happiest, most fascist place on earth, right? Mm -hmm. You will have a good time. You will be smiling. You're not going to wear cutoffs. And if you are wearing anything inappropriate, the Disney police will pull you over. And they do this and make people change. They have mm -hmm. a whole building of wardrobe. Um, so when I saw you posted that, I didn't really pay attention to the date. I actually, for some reason, I thought you guys went because I think I was just so desperate for somebody to be doing something fun in a way, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, who knows if you can pull it off. I don't know if it's going to happen. I, I know that uh, I have a friend who went to Disney World right. in uh, December, I think. Yeah. So Florida's all about it. Well, but California- Florida's extra special that way. It's weird how- it's the same corporation, but it's in two different states in the same country, and they yeah. have completely different viewpoints on how to how to tackle it. Oh well, yeah, but I think a lot of that's also what the state governs. Yeah, too. California is going to lock down some stuff versus Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, a friend of mine was just a line producer on a Disney special that they did for Disney Plus that shot at Walt Disney World, and you know it was it had to be empty at night. They had to light that thing up. 
And even within Disney's ranks, the Disney company that was managing the park was like, we don't want to turn this stuff on. It's really expensive to light this place up. <laughs> yeah, right. And they're like, well, you got to do it. It's for the business. But even to get kickback from the own, within the own company somewhat, that's how big Disney is, right? Yeah. But I ended up w- watching a bit of the special that, that he produced. And it's like, oh, they lit, they lit that place up. I mean, it was every building was lit up everywhere, huh. Main Street, the whole thing. Yeah. I would, I would love to see their electric bill. Oh my God! Could you just like imagine per day? It's probably like twenty grand a day or something oh, crazy. It's way more than that. It's got to be way more than that. It's so That's intense. Nuts. Um, yeah, and I miss Disneyland. I haven't been in so many years. I've been to LA a couple times in the last years, and I have not been getting to Disneyland like mm-hmm. I used to. Um, and I really, I just dig it just because. As far as a park, it's just done so well. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you go to Magic Mountain or you go to Universal or whatever, at least back in the day, they didn't try to hide the speakers. They didn't try to hide the magic in a way. Disneyland, you know, just spend your time walking around Disneyland looking for the speakers. Yeah. You have to do some work, you know, to find where the audio is coming from for this town or mm-hmm. this ride or whatever. And I love Disney Imagineering for all of that. It was just super great. And I'd love to see the Star Wars thing. That just sounds amazing. Yeah, I haven't been down there in 10 or 15 years. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's completely Yeah, 2005 was the last time I was at Disneyland. Yeah. That's a long time. Did you ever go to uh, Knott's Berry Farm or any of those? As a young kid, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I kind of, you know, as I got on and got older, it was like when I lived in L.A. that year, I went to Magic Mountain a couple times, went to Universal, went to Disneyland a lot. And since going back to LA, the subsequent times has only been Disneyland. Like, yeah. I haven't been pulling that off. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think at this point, like, well, I'd go back to Magic Mountain again, and I would love to see Universal. It's been a long time since I've been there. But I also worked in the business, so I know Universal's backlot from being on the Universal backlot. So it's a little bit like, why well, don't I want to do the stuff in front, you yeah. know? But um, Disneyland. I've just been fortunate enough because of going to Disneyland for so many years, knowing people who worked there. I knew about California Adventure way before it was ever going to show up. Who did you know that worked there? Uh, at a time, uh, a woman who I went to college with was was an employee there. So she was very. This was this was back in the, you know, mid nineties when we were going there, and she was saying, "Yeah, Cal, they're going to tear out this parking lot and put a whole other park in." What What was her position? Uh, she was just sort of one of the Disney Imagineering people. Like she was just working at the park as an employee, uh-huh. and then a guy that ended up working at. Nike was working there right as I was. He was leaving right as I came on, was an employee too. And so he had worked in the parks just behind the scenes. So he had given me, and I have this blueprint of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride that of of how it goes in and through the through everything and there's mm-hmm. a room up top where they keep all the fabric and they do all the cleanup and everything for that which is viewable from the ride mm-hmm. uh, but a room you'd never know that was right there huh. like where all the fabrics are to to replace stuff yeah that's like one of the classic uh, I mean, nothing dramatic happens, but it's just one of the classic rides that you. Oh, have absolutely! To go and on. now they put in Johnny Depp, so it's sort yeah. of. Pretty, but yeah, that I mean, obviously, you know, Pirates Life for Me and Rojo and all that kind of stuff, and then just even just the restaurant, the Blue Bayou, that's right there is you mm-hmm. know, it's just all of that magic, and I love. That's why I, Disney, the Disneyland Park is so great because they've designed it in such a way you can never see out of the park mm-hmm. when you're in the park, and. Um, that was always fun. That was just, it's just it's just a high level of production to put it all together. Yeah, well, yeah, and the way that they incorporate all the food too. Like oh, it sucks that it's f- 
fourteen dollars for a cheeseburger. Yeah, but, but, but buy into it. That's what you're, you're going <laughs> to do. It. You're doing Disneyland. That's what you're going to do. Yeah, yeah. They're kind of fine if you want to have some stuff or have a locker, and I, I get all of that. But just seriously, buy the Disney dollars and give your kids money Disney dollars to spend and have them go nuts. I mean, you should. It they should. have actual currency. Yeah. Disney dollars. Yeah, at least they used to. I mean, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're going to want to. How old are your kids now? Uh, 13, 9, and 6. Have any of them been? No. Yeah, this will be their first time. That's great for all. Because I grew up there, so I was going as, you know, a three or four or five year old attending Disneyland and getting pictures taken with with Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. You grew up in LA? I grew up in LA. I I was born on the East Coast. Um, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, actually, and only lived there for a brief time. My dad was in graduate school. My parents are from New York City. Uh, we moved to L.A., uh, I think, because they wanted to get away from their parents. Not surprising. It's <laughs> um, good reason. And I was one. So I lived in L.A. from early age to about kindergarten and then moved to Northern California from kindergarten to fifth grade and then moved to Portland in fifth grade where I've – Never really left. Uh, what part of Northern California? Uh, San Francisco Bay Area, Lafayette, California, East Bay. Uh, I, I consider that middle. Well, North is like Redding and stuff, right? Yeah, well, they, they, San Francisco is sort of Northern California. I don't know if you call Middle California anymore. Yeah, it feels like it feels like there's more Northern and there's Southern California. But yes, I would agree that San Francisco is Central California, but it's sort of one of those. But Northern Northern definitely is Redding and all that. So yeah. you lived in Cal. Uh, San Francisco area in seventy the seventies. So we moved seventy nine. It must so. have been a completely different place. Absolutely. There's movies there that'll like if you watch like Mel Brooks's High Anxiety, uh-huh. that was filmed around that time. Like that's exactly what that is. Um you know, Bart was just developing. It was a much simpler time. I was so I was in four so nineteen seventy seven, Star Wars comes out. Mm-hmm. I'm in between fourth and fifth grade. I meet a buddy of mine by ourselves. We leave our houses, walk down the road to the local BART station, get on a BART, which is the subway or whatever, go to a different town, Walnut Creek, walk six blocks, watch movies, get on the BART, come home, and did that all by ourselves. What fourth grader does that anymore? Yeah. That doesn't happen. No. So when they say times have changed, yeah, they have. Yeah. So, uh, but San Francisco at the time, you know, just uh, that was sort of for me like we were the first memories. Like living in LA as a kid, uh, there's pictures and there's vague memories I have, but it's it's in San Francisco. My first real memories of seeing Close Encounters of the Third Kind at the Coronet Theater with my dad, seeing, mm-hmm. knowing Star Wars, knowing Grease the Musical. You know, Grace so Hall, movies yeah. were a huge part of your life Absolutely. at the beginning and Absolutely. just kind of went through. It's always been. It's. I think that's the key for me is that it's always been. It's always been the dream, and there's always that that magical movie factory, mm-hmm. that idea of things. And I was just lucky enough as a kid to be in places that just kind of kept getting me more and more introduced to it and around it. Um, while in San Francisco, my dad worked for a rock promoter named Bill Graham. Okay. Bill Graham's a pretty famous rock promoter of the day. Um, and so I was – at concerts, the Oakland Coliseum, backstage as a grade schooler, right? You know, when you nice. think of like Frampton and Santana and Fleetwood Mac and Led Zeppelin and the Doobie Brothers, I'm a kid and I'm backstage at these events. I'm there days before watching them set up. Whoa. 
So I'm introduced to it really early on. I saw one of the first Pong games. I was around the team that was developing the first laser light shows. I was just around that as a kid. That's what my dad was working for at the time. So I was really fortunate at an early age to kind of just be like, oh, I see all this. I love do you, all this. Do you have actual memories of hearing Led Zeppelin in concert? The only memory I have of, of Led Zeppelin in concert, and and mind you, mind you, at the time, like I was really into the Bay City Rollers, which uh-huh. I saw in concert, and I the Beatles were who I was really interested yeah. at the time. Um, I also saw Kiss, by the way, in concert uh, with Cheap Trick opening up. Nice, but Led Zeppelin. So we're was Day on the Green, which was these giant shows. They do summer shows in Oakland Col- in the Oakland Coliseum outdoors. Frampton Comes Alive album was recorded there, 4th of July. It was there at that concert. Um, but we're, my dad takes me. He's like, well, let's go to the back of the stadium. Like, we go all the way to the other side of the stadium, just way as far back as we can, way up in the raft, way up in the seats. And Led Zeppelin's playing, and I don't know who they are, but they raise over the stage this giant Zeppelin flat, okay, on the back of a crane. And I asked my dad, what's a Zeppelin? He's like, well, it's like a blimp. That's all I remember. Wow. Yeah, but I can say I saw them. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah, there's not many people that can say that. No, I mean, I was eight, seven, eight years old. But, I mean, it's still it's still memories of that. And to say, like, yeah, I saw them live, I could say that. Wow. I can say that. That's cool. Yeah. I, but at the time, probably, I was more into probably Fleetwood Mac at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, Doobie Brothers, definitely. Well, yeah, when you're that young, you're only into whatever your parents are playing for. Yeah, you. pretty much. Yeah, my yeah. dad was not listening to Led Zeppelin, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. So, yeah. A lot of Beatles, a lot yeah. of Beatles. Nothing totally. wrong with that. No, no. And so I think that's the thing for me was like having that, then moving to Portland and in grade school, getting a role in sort of the spring play of the host and the narrator, mm-hmm. sort of a big deal in sixth grade, I think. And went off to junior high and – my dad was like, well, my dad was a trumpet player. He's like, well, you should be in the band. He'd also done some theater, but he was like, you should really do band mm-hmm. first off. And I hated every fucking minute of it because I was rehearsing with my dad. Yeah. He wanted this for me. I didn't want this. Yeah. So I did nine weeks of band. And then by the second quarter there, I moved into theater and just never looked back. Mm-hmm. And I was cast in the spring music, spring play as Raggedy Andy and Raggedy and Andy. And uh, my dad was very supportive of me doing this. He 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 knew he, he my dad's philosophy was as a parent, he said, You're the bowman. Your kid is the arrow. Mm-hmm. Point them in the right direction and let them go. Yeah. Now my mother, not so much. She couldn't let go. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge situation. That's a different episode. That's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a different episode. But so when when my father when my father realized it was theater for me, he was all gung-ho for me to do it. And when I said I wanted to study theater, I, they were very gracious. They gave me the gift of college. Mm-hmm. I got four years of college. He said, I will give you four years. And and after that, you're on your own. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, done. I worked my ass off and got four years of college done and then pretty much been on my own since. Now, yeah, sure, I borrowed money from my parents when I was in my 20s. I went back to live with my mom when I was in my 20s. It happens. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> yeah. But – um, it definitely set me up to be focused, to get a good education, and to get out there in the world and work, mm-hmm. which is what I want to do. I didn't want to do graduate school. I was like, I want to get a very specialized degree and go out and work, and I did. That's that's the difference. Um, I mean, now between 
many generations uh, before us that it used to be that you could go to college and get a degree for something and use that to make a decent living. And now there's so many people who, I mean, it doesn't matter. The wealth gap is insane. I mean, even in my lifetime, I've watched it happen where where just the rich have more and the poor have less in a Mm -hmm. way. The middle class is gone Mm -hmm. as we knew it. And um, yeah, I just think you know the, the expense. Like for me to go to college, fall term at Southern Oregon at the time State College, fall term was five hundred and seven dollars for in-state full course of classes for for one term. One term. Okay, so just the classes two grand basically for an entire year. Pretty much. Yeah. Less. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have your housing and cost on top of that, and that's a different deal, but. That doesn't happen anymore. No. And, you know, right now, loan forgiveness would be a huge boost to the economy mm-hmm. and a huge boost for definitely racial inequality. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to happen. Um, it's looking like it, yeah. Yeah, you have to. You have well, to. That, that's the thing I don't understand, and I don't pay a ton of attention to, like, getting in the nitty-gritty of right. everything. But, like, if we are able to – Create one point five trillion dollars out of thin air yeah. to to give stimulus checks to everybody. Like we've got money, we we've can, got we the can money. do anything. The we military want. budget. If you just nip the military budget just a little bit, yeah. you'll be able to. You, you can pay everybody well. And right now, economic stimulus is what has to happen. We are, mm-hmm. you know, we are still a capitalist country, regardless of the current you know, strife. But you, you got to get people got to figure out, but got to be feel safe. Well, that's the other thing I don't understand is why there's not more business owners being proponents for it because the people who are getting the stimulus checks yeah. make less than $75,000 a year. Right. Those people are taking that money yeah. and they're spending it at Target yeah. and they're spending it at Amazon. Absolutely. They're not putting it in their 401k or well, investing the, it in the stock market. They're buying stuff. They're buying stuff. They're also saving though. I mean, there is there, the statement that came out and mind you, I get generally all my information from NPR. So it's mm-hmm. always going to have a good liberal slant to it. Mm-hmm. But that banks have more than a trillion extra dollars in them right now that people in the US have just been keeping in the bank. Because they're not spending it in a way that they normally would be spending it. Because they are concerned they might not have any money next month. Absolutely. But at the same time, you know, restaurants, food that we love. I love food. Let me tell you, I love food is such a joy. And there are meals that I knew in Portland. I'm like, I will only have this in Portland because it's nothing else is like this anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And those places have closed. Yeah. You know, um, will they reopen? Probably. Will they be different? Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of my favorite restaurants is Montage. Love the Montage, right? Downtown Portland, late night attitude, terrible, you know, rude, beautiful service, like on purpose kind of a way, yeah. and family style seating, and a great bar to wait in, and always a line. They closed. They closed. But they opened a food cart. So you're gonna you're gonna figure it out. They'll Where's the food cart at? Uh, there's that pod down. Uh, there's an intense pod down on right between Hawthorne near Hawthorne and Eighth and Ninth, somewhere right in there. Mm-hmm. So right by the Lucky Lab, they opened up a uh, pod. And they're still doing the uh, decorative. I don't tin think foil. probably not. Like that's probably gone away because yeah. that was for you to go. Yeah. So that's probably gone away. But mm-hmm. you know, it's still a food cart. Still, you can get some of the food. Maybe you miss. Um, 
Yeah, the the world of food and much like entertainment, just decimated, just mm-hmm. decimated. And um, you know, things like Amazon, where you're being able to shop for what you need. Yeah, that's how that's going to be. Like going to the supermarket's a ninja affair for me. Like the wife and I, we don't go together. Mm-hmm. Like one of us is going. Who's going to the market? I'll go. Yeah. And you go in with a list and you get in and you get out as fast mm-hmm. as you can. Yeah. Um, it's crazy days right now with mm-hmm. all of that. I, I, I believe we're on the tail end of this. I believe we're I seeing so. a way out of this. Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird how normal it's become. Well, sometimes we're adaptable. Like, I uh, I, uh, I I stopped smoking weed for a long time, mm. and recently I've been smoking a little bit at night, and yeah. then I'll, I'll take my dog for a walk and yeah. just walk around the neighborhood, yeah. and I'll forget that it's COVID. Oh yeah, because I'm not wearing a mask or anything. Yeah, and I'll just like magically go back in time. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm like, oh, this is what it was like. This is absolutely what it was like. Yeah. Uh, I walk my dog and I forget to bring a mask. I'm in my own neighborhood. And then it's because of the neighborhood I live in, it's a city path too. So mm-hmm. we get a lot of people just sort of passing through. Mm-hmm. And we're the only neighborhood in the area, only street in the area with sidewalks. Mm-hmm. So we get a lot of people passing through. And I'm like, I'm just walking my dog to poop in the morning. Do I have to have a mask? I'm like... Probably I should. And even when I take walks for exercise, I carry a mask with me in case I pass anybody or go by anybody because mm-hmm. that's actually the worst of us passing, huffing yeah. and puffing, mm-hmm. more more of a chance for this. And we're so close for this to be done. Yeah. I do like whiskey to help kill it. Yeah. Although, I mean, I was drinking a lot of whiskey earlier this year. I think that's – I think for a lot of people – you know, It saved you. It saved I, I, Well, no, the weed saved me more than anything. I'm such a chronic. It's hysterical. Yeah? Um, yeah. I, that's always been my weapon of choice. Whiskey, a good second. A martini, third. Mm-hmm. You know, beer is one of those that, you know, living in Portland, you, think, oh, you must love beer. I have tried so many terrible IPAs that mm-hmm. I don't really like IPAs. I'm not a fan of IPAs. They're no. just too heavy. No, too heavy, too, pill- too uh, hoppy. I'm, you know, I'm definitely a good Pilsner guy. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely a lager guy, but I don't really – my weapon of choice would be whiskey at any yeah. given time. Yeah, same here. Um, I don't know. It just probably is where I've gotten to in my life. I had, I, had, I, had, I did stand-up for a long time. Did you know that? Just... Somebody mentioned that to me at some point and uh, – You're like, no, I don't believe it. It was as – Amazing to me as finding out that you did film. Well, I think the thing about it is, is that, is that I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I'm two sided, but there's different aspects of me depending on who you're hanging out with. In college, in the theater department, I was the straight laced guy. Mm-hmm. I was the guy who was focused. I was a stage manager. I kept everybody kind of. In the dorm, I was the wacky theater kid. Mm-hmm. So. It, where you would see me wouldn't necessarily, you know, in our professional careers, where we would interact. Mm-hmm. You definitely get my level of snark, and I think you always appreciated that. And you're also very good about your level of snark about the situation we'd be in. Like I always just, like I always have this. We'll have this vision of you, and I don't remember what we were saying, but it was always like we were passing by in the middle of something, like hey, that, yeah, yeah, that, okay, great, and then everything was sort of fine. Um, Stand-up comedy for me became something I did because I was trying to think of the scariest thing I could do. Yeah. I've done dance. I performed in film. I performed in theater. I can't sing. That's the next big scary thing is singing mm-hmm. in public. That's a that's another episode. Um, 
the stand-up became the scariest thing I can think of doing. And I needed a creative outlet that didn't involve anybody else. Yeah. And I found it fascinating, just the dynamic of working with young, drunk comedians who mm -hmm. felt really entitled. I never let on that I had a big entertainment background with the Portland comedy scene. I never let on that I could do audio. Yeah. Because I didn't want to be the guy walking in and having to fix somebody's PA system. No. Because I don't want to touch anybody's PA system in some strange bar. Yeah. That's just not what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to be known for it. I just wanted to be known for just doing stand-up. And the Portland comedy scene was tough. It was, you know, really intense. I found a way of going through it. At a certain point, I went, oh, I'm not doing this forever. But it was such an addiction that you didn't want to give it up, that, that feed of getting, you know, an intense response from a group. It learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself, my ability to present, my ability mm -hmm. now to pitch stories, do podcasts like this. Um I'll never not do it. If you ever give me the opportunity, I'll definitely get up and tell you. Yeah, I, I've never done it, but everything I've ever heard about it makes it so appealing to me for the exact reason you just said is that it is the most terrifying. Yeah. It's, it's one or the other. You either bomb and it is the most embarrassing thing that you've ever experienced or you kill and everybody just loves you. And so you get one or the other. But that's for every comedian. That's not just for you. That's a, there are, I watch great comedians bomb at times. Yeah. And that's part of the beauty of it. Also, it's a weird art project, art process for me because I'm used to the directing and the producing I'm doing. We're going to make a project behind closed doors and then expose it to the world, mm -hmm. right? Stand-up, the only way to make it work for the world is to expose it immediately. Well, and it – you can't plan everything beforehand. Like a lot of it's just what happens in the moment. Absolutely. And my comedy got – my comedy for me, as I was trying to develop my voice and figure out what I was about, and I never really fully did. I only kind of got to it more recently, um, was the stuff that I was just making up in the situation. Mm -hmm. It was my best stuff. Yeah. By the time I was done with it, I was doing anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes. Nice. At certain gigs. And maybe 15 to 17 was actually fully written out jokes. Yeah. And the rest of it was just riffing off the situation I was yeah. in. I, at certain open mics, I would just write stuff based off of what I was seeing in the moment and then go up and reflect that. Yeah. And that's when – those were mu the much better nights for me than trying to write a joke. Yeah. Um, partly because writing a joke and the structure and the timing uh, is very vitally important for the voice you have. And I, like I said, was trying to develop my voice. And I never yeah. quite found it mm -hmm. in the time that I was doing it. Because mm -hmm. also, at a certain, like I said, at a certain point, I was like, I'm done with this. But it took me a while to get out of it. Yeah. Well, I, I also hear that it takes a decade for you to get really oh, good. absolutely. And you have to do it every single night. Every night, two or three times a night. Yeah. And my wife, at a certain point, was like, I really like you home. I was like, okay, that's totally <laughs> I fair. I want to see you. We're I married. Wanna, we're married. We're, yeah. But, you know, here's the thing now is, like, we've been married, you know, we got, it's been 20 years of marriage mm -hmm. for us right now. Nice. And now it's a little bit, like, especially living together, you know, in the COVIDs, we're not going anywhere. It's like, how can I miss you if you never leave? Um so, you know, she's definitely – prior to the COVIDs even happening, she was like, if you need to go to L.A. and work, you need to go, you know, do that. Because mm -hmm. after a certain point, you're like, oh, okay, well, I'll see you later kind yeah. of thing and it will be fine mm -hmm. um, and have that balance. But with, at the time with stand-up, it's a day-to-day -day kind of thing. And it was very little fiscal payoff. The joke was I made tens of dollars doing yeah. it, you know. Yeah. So you, you don't really – 
it, you have to be fully committed to it, fully. And I know some of them, some of the comedians that started when I was starting are doing very well right now, and, and, and as they can be within the COVIDs. Um, but it's a, uh, you know, it's bars and it's late nights and. It's a, it's a different schedule. It's a different schedule. And, you know, I was doing it because I could, you know, and it worked out okay. You know, and I'm, I'm glad I did it. It got me better to pitch stories now, yeah. uh, which are vitally important. There's a lot of these great storytellers who write a great script but don't know how to share it with a with an executive. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I have that ability. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, well, I think that's much? a good spot oh, to uh, oh my god, yeah, look to at shut that. things down. So uh, I appreciate you coming out. Thank and you. Out. I really appreciate being here. This is really great. I'm really glad. To, I like I said. I think the smiles for the cover photo are just great. <laughs> and if we're doing a video here, this is even better. But yeah, uh, a lovely setup for sure. I might Thank have you. To, I might have to do my own podcast and steal it. No, I'm kidding. Whatever you got to do. I mean, you got the Make soft lights and yeah. everything. It's you know, cozy. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Goodbye. Cool. All right. Well, thank awesome. you. I appreciate it. No, good to have me. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.